0: And good afternoon, Chuck Morse, WMFO, Tufts Freeform Radio. Welcome to the program, and of course, you're welcome to join us at 855-915-9636 right here at Tufts University, Medford, Somerville, Boston, as I launch yet another live program right here in the very heart of America's intellectual milieu. Tufts University what could be better than that Um, again you're welcome to join me again Chuck Morse and uh, let's see here we're also live on Facebook you can go to my Boston Uberman page and see the program as I broadcast it you'll also hear it on Facebook and um, I'm of course hoping to and seeking to welcome your phone calls your thoughts Uh, last time I was here two weeks ago um, it was, of course, the day before the election. And um, I was um, here basically espousing my points of view on that. It was just two days before what we have in this country, which is a, an amazing thing. It's a it's a peaceful and orderly revolution. Happens every four years, every two years if we count Congress. And um, we, we witness and we participate in a change of power, change of regime, if you will, um, and do so uh, with the hope that uh, the new government reflects our values and uh, conducts itself accordingly. So the particular year, the, um, I think the election was unusual in that Donald Trump was, I would argue, um, not just an unusual figure, but a revolutionary figure who represented a movement, whether you like the movement or not, it did. And in that sense, Trump was similar to the election of Reagan back in 1980, who also shook up the establishment at the time he had. It was a very similar dynamic and that Reagan was opposed by not only the Democrats and liberals, but also by the establishment Republicans, by the media, by the big sort powers that be, the, the, the big um, institutions. And, um, and that he was not expected to win. And, and he came up and won with an upset. I actually think that Donald Trump represents something more than that. Um, I think Trump is the most revolutionary president elect, and the most revolution heads the most revolutionary movement since Andrew Jackson. I mean, I, th- I think I go back to that. Now, obviously, we could look at Andrew Jackson's presidency. I mean, it's <laughs> he made some very major mistakes, particularly the, um, the the Trail of Tears, which drove Native Americans out of their out of their homelands and out into uh, Oklahoma State, which, of course, was not a happy chapter in American history by any means. But he also represented a kind of a, an assertion of rights and of powers by the people at the time and who were criticized and condemned by the establishment as being ignorant and stupid and low and, and uneducated and uninformed, and um, and yet who who prevailed in the manner that we're supposed to prevail, which is that we are a self-governing nation and that our government reflects who we are. And that it turned out that the people who who elected Andrew Jackson were not so stupid after all. After all, Andrew Jackson not only led a major shift in um, power in, in in Washington, but he also established a movement that that created hit seven protégés as presidents who came after him all of whom were his followers and who continued to implement his his agenda and they were john tyler james k polk um franklin pierce james buchanan andrew johnson and uh, there was oh and of course james of course his predecessor his his successor martin van buren and uh you know they were their rhetoric was very similar to trumps rhetoric they ran against the second bank of the united states the the central bank at the time and um and andrew jackson actually dismantled that bank he also was one of the few world leaders um in history who actually balanced the federal budget um and he did so and even though there was a um there was somewhat of a recession right after he left office, and that was due to some mistakes he made, particularly going back to a strict gold standard, and it was a, you know, kind of an involved subject. Nevertheless, he launched a golden era in, in American history, an era that led to the abolition of slavery, that led to the enfranchisement of millions of people. Um, you know, It moved in the direction of enfranchising women a- as voters and with equal rights um he enfranchised uh, you know property owners and, and and the idea of um of self-sovereignty he also further advanced with his economic policies and his monetary policies an advance in american prosperity and an american accumulation of wealth which of course translates at all levels rich medium and poor and i hope that um That Donald Trump, who I think has embraced similar ideas, will launch the same. And I think that we all, at some level, hope that. However, I will ask my Tufts University listeners here in Medford and Somerville um, first of all, what do you think of the election? And secondly, what about this reaction of despair and depression and mourning and upsetness? not to mention street action and, and looting and burning, that followed the election. Um, it was a somewhat national story, quite frankly, that Tufts University, on the day after the election, had like a kind of an arts and crafts day so the people could make little, you know, clay ashtrays or whatever. And uh, and gimp reminds me of when I used to be in... in uh, day summer camp as a kid, you know, when I think of arts and crafts, um, so that they can feel better because they were so distraught over the election of Trump. But I, guess, I guess my question to my audience here is uh, exactly what is that all about? What was so distressing? I, I can tell you that um, the Boston Public Schools actually had counselors um, in the schools to help people deal with their upsetness, their emotional problems associated with this election. Um, You know, it's certainly a far cry from uh, any other election I can remember. I remember certainly the election of Barack Obama where people were literally celebrating. And, you know, we had, um, I remember there was a teacher at a school who actually kept a diary, had the students keep a diary of every day that Obama was in office and talk about the great things he did. And there was a sense of greatness, of, of like that things were moving in toward this idea of a change or, or, a, um, or a idea of hope. And I think that people who who um, didn't vote for Obama felt the same way. Even though they, they went into what we call the loyal opposition, they still hoped for the sake of the country and for the sake of cohesion that, the Administration would succeed. you know? I mean, nobody wants the country to fail. You know, We don't predict, you know, just because we didn't vote for someone. We all come together after an election, at least that's been the American tradition. Going back to Washington. Um, you know, we put aside the rancor of the campaign, and we coalesce. We usually do so, and then there's a there's a period of transition. And then there's what's called a honeymoon period, which usually can last anywhere from 60 days, I suppose, to maybe a, a half a year, where the new president-elect is given a break, where we get to—we uh, we hope that the new president-elect sets forth an agenda that we can support, and if we don't support it, we don't on legitimate grounds. I mean, we, we make the argument and we we, we set up opposition and we vote against it, but but it's not this idea of, this rancorous idea that we're going to not recognize the president, this is not my president, and that sort of thing. And so I would argue, and I think, and personally for me, and I would say this even if I was not a supporter of Trump, which I happen to be, I would say that um, every election should be A celebration, first of all, that we got through it peacefully and that we're seeing a peaceful transition of power, which is not something that we can take for granted. It's certainly not something that happens in most countries historically. And secondly, that the people have spoken and that there is a new government coming in that reflects the new zeitgeist, if you will, of the country. It's It's a taking of the pulse of the country. Um, and and a um, and it's a verdict, if you will, uh, on, on what the country is thinking and feeling, whether we agree with it or not. We should celebrate the fact that it happens peacefully, and we should feel happy and good about that. Not not having psychologists come in to give us counseling, not sitting there traumatized and and um, all bent out of shape over it. Let's get with it. Let's be grateful. Be grateful that we still have a free country. Be grateful for all of the wonderful things, especially you guys at Tufts. You know, you're at the epicenter of America's intellectual um, institution here. You are the future of America, Tufts students. You are the people who are going to be America's best and brightest in the future. That's one of the reasons I want to do this broadcast. I want to, I want to check your pulse. You know, you are the people who are going to be the future political leaders, the future corporate leaders, the future, you know, cultural leaders, the people who have influence. That's what Tufts is. It's part of that. It's, you know, which is why it's interesting to me and which is why I'm looking forward to developing a program here by which I can not only take the pulse of the Tufts University community, uh, both students and professors, but begin to, you know, connect this with – other campuses, as, as other college stations hopefully will pick up the show and and as I broadcast live on Facebook and I put it up on iTunes and all that good stuff, which I do, and, um, and build a chance by which Tufts University, through this show, will be able to reach national influence and will be able to discuss controversies both on this campus and as a reflection on all campuses as they come up. So anyway, come on down, join me here, 855-915-9636, this is your host Chuck Morse, on Thursday from 11 till noon, every other week, soon to go, be going every week hopefully, in fact by the summer I'm told that the show might go as a daily, but right now I'm just still getting my feet wet here, just finding my sea legs, just coming back into live radio from a pretty long hiatus of being off the air and so uh, come on down 855-915-9636 855-915-9636 what is on your mind this afternoon how do you feel about the election what is happening at the Tufts campus with regard to the election Uh, What are people saying? What are people doing? All that good stuff. Um, An issue that came up during the campaign that seems to be roiling the firmament right now and is something that I'm investigating is this business of the alt-right or the alternative right. What is it? The first time I heard of it was when Hillary Clinton spoke about it at a speech in Reno, Nevada during the campaign, where she said that the uh, Donald Trumps uh, is, is introducing a radical right-wing element into the campaign. In, and she used as evidence the fact that he had appointed as his campaign chairman Stephen K. Bannon, who she said was a member of the alt-right. Now, her evidence for that was that Stephen K. Bannon is the executive director of Breitbart News and that Breitbart News was either part of the alt-right or was publishing articles by people who call themselves alt-right people. Now, the fact is that Stephen K. Bannon did say that, um, that his, his platform, that being Breitbart News, would be a platform for the alt-right. So that's, that's on the record, and so th- there is a point there. So we have to look at what is the alt-right Now, from what I can gather, the alt-right is made up of sort of Internet people, uh, people who write articles and who have become famous, uh, if you will, within a certain context as bloggers, as podcasters um, online. I mean, it's part of the new Internet um, society. Um, and that as such, they speak in very blunt and sometimes bombastic and even offensive terms. Um, and that they are on the right in the same way. Like for, for example, every day, as a radio host and as a, as a blogger and as a podcaster myself, I get a, an emailed compilation of articles from Breitbart. I also get an emailed compilation of articles from left-wing groups like Alternet, Counterpunch, um, Huffington Post, which I wouldn't say is left wing. I would say that they're left of center. And a bunch of other people. I look at World Net Daily. I look at, um, sometimes I look at Slate. And I look at, um, oh, what is that one? It's, it's very left. Um, uh, the Daily Costs. The Daily Kos. I look at that one. And, um, and that these groups generally have this same kind of tone. It's very bombastic. It's very abrasive at times. Um, It can be very in-your-face, so to speak. It's a different way of communicating than the traditional newspaper approach. It's not filtered through editorial pages, whether they be liberal or conservative, like like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or anywhere else. And it's not particularly well-mannered at times. It can get very um, nasty and abusive, and oftentimes people in these... Sites get into personal fighting matches with, with, their, with people who disagree with them I mean Front Page Magazine is another one David Horowitz and I think that's that Breitbart news needs to be understood in that context um, and that I mean to the extent that they're part of the alt-right the alt-right to me and, and I think that Stephen Bannon reflects this is a view that also is embraced by Donald Trump. And Donald Trump is a perfect example of a product of this new Internet ethos. You know, he can be abrasive like that. He seems to communicate in those terms. I think he always did, probably even before the Internet. But um, th- th- there's an ethos that he embraces. And that um, that is this... Very vigorous and tough investigation of the opposition, and this going after what, what Bannon has called this sort of international banking, um, corporate uh, inter- elite, people who are, you know, involved with multinational corporations, international banking establishments, the media, academia, The cultural institutions, and that these people tend to be amoral, not necessarily pro American. They tend to have an internationalist view of the world. They tend to be anti religion, at least Judaism and Christianity. Uh, They tend to be, you know, authoritarian in their general outlook. And his rhetoric. Is such that he goes after those people, and the alt right is what that's the main part of the alt right that somebody like Stephen Bannon represents. Um, this idea of going after what we call the establishment, and in that sense, someone like a Stephen K. Bannon or even a Donald Trump is using similar language, and is tapping into similar sentiments, as is a somebody like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, putting aside the fact that Warren is a phony, but we'll get, that's another subject. The point is that they are all talking the same language. I mean, it, it was Elizabeth Warren and, and Bernie Sanders who started out with the business of that the system is rigged. What system are they talking about, right? And Trump as well is saying the system is rigged. And that's the view of Bannon, and that's, that's an alt-right uh, understanding that there's not necessarily a conspiracy but there is what uh, former communist and then writer Whitaker Chambers described as an informal conspiracy. It's not a bunch of people sitting around in a room and smoking cigars. It has more to do with an, a tendency by people who are in high levels of, of government and business and the culture thinking in a certain way that is similar to each other. They don't necessarily talk to each other. This isn't a literal conspiracy but it is an establishment that has become um, very um, used to power, somewhat lazy and somnambulant in their exercise of power, and they send to cordon themselves off from the rest of the world, whether they be Democrat or Republican, by the way, and that Trump has gone after that. I mean, he's tried to crack that wall, as did Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and the left. And so... That's how I see the alt-right. I mean, they are the right-wing version of this. On the left, you have, you know, the, the Sanderites, you know, and people who are trying to rail against the elite establishment from their perspective. I would suggest that the, um, most people who are, consider themselves supporters of Bernie Sanders on the left, and that probably includes a pretty good contingency of Tufts University students, are well-meaning their hearts in the right place but they are back in the wrong horse because the left establishment the left uh, idea is actually one that's going to further enthrone the authoritarian establishment because leftism itself is a full an authoritarian philosophy it seeks to undermine institutions that result in individual freedom like private ownership and and uh, you know small business and and the right to trade in goods and services and, and all of the things that, that, that create a free individual living in a free society. And so they are by nature authoritarian. So when they rail against the establishment, it's not necessarily because they want to tear down the establishment. They might want to change the name of it, but what they're ultimately seeking is an increase in the establishment. I'll give you one example. Both, both uh, Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump railed against the Trans-Pacific Partnership, right, that Hillary Clinton was a major architect of. Um, They both did so because they felt that it was, you know, a bad deal. But in the case of Trump, his opposition to it was that it did not put America first. He's not against a trade deal, but he feels that we should use our leverage as as a strong economic powerhouse to get a better deal, that protects American interests, American labor, American industry. Whereas, if you look beneath the surface, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, their opposition to the Trans-Pacific Partnership is not because they want America necessarily to get a better deal. It's because they want the Trans-Pacific Partnership to be bigger. They want it to cover international controls. They want to transfer American sovereign constitutional rights to an international body in issues such as environmental regulation, labor regulation, all over the world, um, and even things like you know um, population control and and other agendas that they view as human rights. Right? So they they're against the TPP because it's not big enough. So you have to look behind the rhetoric and ask yourself, which is in the interest of America? Do you support an agenda that would put America's interests first? Um, I would hope that people would. I argue that that's a better approach. I think it's the natural approach. We ought to put the interests of our nation first in the same way that they put the interests of our own selves first, of our own families first. And by doing so, we're not saying we're not going to consider other people at all. In fact, if we put our interests first, we're actually in a position where we can help other people more. In fact, that's why America, the American people, and our American government is the most generous and humane in history. Because we have put our interests first. We are then therefore able to fulfill that natural aspect of human nature, that better aspect which goes out and helps other people in need. So it's not a matter of, of, of either or, it's a matter of priority. Once you put your own life first, then you can help others, rather than sacrificing your life in the interest of others and being told that you have to do that. So to get back to the topic here, that's what I think the alt-right's about. However. There are racists in it, too, so I'm going to get into that in a minute. Anyway, let me welcome aboard uh, listeners here. You're listening to WMFO Tufts, Medford, Tufts, Medford, and Somerville, and Boston. This is your host, Chuck Morse, Chuck Morse Radio, 855-915-9636. What is on your mind this afternoon? eight five five nine one five nine six three six 855-915-9636. Let's see what's happening in the wonderful world of public service announcements. Organ donation. This is a very important one. There are many social networking websites, but one stands apart for a very special reason. It saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com lists organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. In the United States, 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant, most of them for kidneys. If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you are someone in need of an organ transplant, visit MatchingDonors.com, home of the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. This has been a public service message from MatchingDonors.com. And WMFO Medford Tufts Educational Radio. Uh, let's see questions. Uh, this is uh, let's, what else we got going here. One in three adults has diabetes or pre-diabetes. Are you one of them? The National Diabetes Education Program is your source for free information on prevention and control. Call one eight 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 six nine three NDEP one eight 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 693-NDEP or click www.yourdiabetesinfo.org That's www.yourdiabetesinfo.org A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Chronic fatigue syndrome affects more than 1 million Americans CFS is real and it can be devastating visit www.cdc.gov/cfs for the latest on diagnosis and treatment get informed get diagnosis get diagnosed I should say and get help help excuse me so anyway come on down you're welcome to join me Chuck Morse here at Tufts University Radio Great pleasure to be here back on the air. And the number is 855-915-9636. That's 855-915-9636. And um, getting back to the topic at hand, which is this, what is the alt-right? Uh, which, by the way, I'm, I'm now investigating because I'm writing about it in my book. There is a, a, a what I would certainly call a racist element to it. There are two people involved that I found which I would describe as racist. They are Peter Brimelow, the author of V Dare. It's a website that's been around for a long time. I've interviewed him before. And Jared Taylor, the author of a website called American Renaissance, also has been around since the 1990s. They're both authors of many books. They actually both are pretty good intellectuals. They're not crazy people. Um, and they're not racist in the sense of white supremacy. You know, they don't believe that white people are superior to non-whites. They don't believe that, you know, the world should be controlled by white folk. I mean, that's sort of a white supremacist view. That's actually very much akin with um, with like a Nation of Islam view of uh, Minister Louis Farrakhan and Malcolm X or uh, Minister uh, Jeremiah Wright who was President Barack Obama's minister which is a black supremacist view. The white people are the devils and the black race is the original race and a superior race and that sort of thing. They're more like, I would describe them as white nationalists. They believe that the white race should be the predominant race in the United States, and that we should limit non-white immigration, and that we should exist alongside and peacefully with nations of other races, whether it be black or Asian or whatever. And um, that's their view. I think they're dead wrong. Uh, I think it is not really part of the alt-right in the real sense. I don't think it's what Stephen Bannon had in mind when he said alt-right, I think these are guys who have glommed onto the alt right. They'd been a la- around long before it and who make up a small percentage of people who follow the alt right. Um, Stephen Bannon was on record as saying when he was interviewed about this that he felt that these sort of white nationalist views and anti Semitic views also would eventually wash away, he said. And While I think that that's probably true, at the same time, I would argue that we have to be vigilant in terms of exposing that and identifying it and and describing why it's wrong. I mean, it's un-American, frankly. You know, we're not a nation based upon white people. And even if we are, it's not a conscious thing. There's nothing in the Constitution that says you have to be white. I mean, that's absurd. It runs against everything that I would suggest not only America stands for, but what conservatism stands for, which is to honor and exalt and, the, and admire and promote individual accomplishment, whether you're white or black, whether you're male or female, whether you're gay or straight. It's an idea that we admire accomplishment. We admire character. We admire success. And so I think that that view is dead wrong. Um, I also think that their view of white nationalism is comparable to the left-wing view that is expressed by um, this sort of micro aggression theories which was started by a Harvard professor by the name of Charles Pierce back in the 1980s this idea that racism is something that you can detect under a microscope, basically. And so they hold up the microscope and they try to find shreds of racism and then, you know, expose it. And I think it's not, it's, it's not it shouldn't be viewed as ironic, but it's observable that the people that are put under those microscopes are people who are not on the left. They wouldn't put a left winger under a microscope like that. And so it becomes, a, a, in a sense, a form of tyranny And it becomes a hyper-race identity philosophy that I think is similar to that which is um, espoused by people like Peter Brimelow and, and Jared Taylor on the right. This idea at its core that people actually are different because of their race, to a certain extent because of their ethnic background, because of their gender, because of their sexual orientation, it's, it's just, it's un-American and it's false. These things are personal. These things are factors that are in our own lives and that we relate to as individuals in different ways or at all. But they are not the main aspect of who we are. We are who we are. You know, in America, we judge people based on who they are, who they are as individuals. And um, that's the main frankly, the main conservative message, and I think it contrasts very starkly with the liberal collective message, which is that we can't be who we are because who we are is bad, and therefore we require government to create equality by removing aspects of who we are and by, you know, sort of smoothing them out so everybody's de facto equal. Conservatives recognize individuality and all of the institutions that support that because they believe that while the system is imperfect, because there's no such thing as perfection, it's a system that, to use President Kennedy's words, tends to rise all boats, including those that are most disadvantaged. So these, these um, white nationalists, if you will, I, I think that they are part of the alt-right They should be condemned and I condemn them and that they should be understood as really not being the mainstream of the alt-right more than the Communist Party is a mainstream of the liberals. You know, the Communist Party, after all, endorsed Hillary Clinton. They had front page articles in the Workers Weekly World doing so. Does that mean that Hillary Clinton and the Democrats are communists? No, absolutely not. But... You know, they, they the communists obviously found some resonance with them. Um, I think that the the alt right has a complete misinterpretation of American nationalism. In fact, their interpretation of American nationalism is frankly similar to the left's. The conservative understanding of nationalism is as I think expressed by Donald Trump quite well. Is that we respect limited constitutional government. We honor, you know, individual rights. We don't honor, we don't worship the government. We don't worship the nanny state. You know, we don't see government power as a transformative factor, as a utopian uh, vehicle, like the left does or like the alt right uh, radical. White nationalists do. I mean, they, they want to have government, you know, based on race. That's a left-wing idea, actually. <laughs> I mean, in the real sense, just like Nazism was on the left. Anyway, you're welcome to join me, Chuck Morse. Come on down. Let's see. 855-915-9636. 855 855-915. 915 Nine six three six, and I'd love to hear what's on your mind, um, Tufts University. I'm going to be, um, you know, I'm still new here. This is only my second show, so uh, people don't necessarily know I'm here yet. But you know, in time, as I roll it out, as I start to promote it, as I start to bring in people as as guests, um, I think the show will will build. We'll build legs. I mean, these things take time. Um, probably take about a year, I, I suspect. But my goal, again, is to tap into the intellectual community that is Tufts University. So, come on down. What's on your mind this afternoon, eh? 855-915-9636 is the number. Let's see. 855 855- nine one five nine six three six as i learned how to run the board here i assume that i will be able to do a phone call <laughs> but of course i'll cross that bridge when i get to it they've given me all these instructions and i've studied it and i've actually passed the test and all that but you know the hands-on part of it is still uh, is still tricky So, again, on this date, Wednesday the 16th, what do you? Th- well, Thursday the 17th, what do you think of the aftermath of the election of Donald J. Trump as president of the United States? I will tell you that I'm elated. I feel this country has really bit the bullet. You know, I mean, we've really stopped what I think was, yeah, I think the people looked at Donald Trump and they saw that he's an a-hole. I get that. But they also looked at Hillary Clinton and saw someone who is very, very corrupt. And that Clinton made the major mistake of running a very negative campaign. All she did was rail against how can we elect somebody like Trump and that he's this and he's that. And all this kind of picking out specific little comments he made, which admittedly are rude. But nobody believes that Trump has something against black people. I mean... <clears throat> or women. I mean, they. I just don't think they do. I mean, even if he's obnoxious. And even if he's, you know, says and does stupid things. But she completely focused everyone's attention on that. That they should, you know, this hatred, this negative, you know, meme. That we should vote uh, for, not for her, but against Trump because he's so evil. And I just some of the comments made were so beyond the pale. I think trump summed it up best himself during one of the debates when he said what a nasty person and um and i think toward the end bill clinton himself is on record as having yelled at hillary for not trying to say something positive to working people to not reaching out to blue collar workers to rank and file union members to um you know lower middle class the working poor the middle class, the people who traditionally have supported Democratic candidates. She did nothing to reach out to them. And they're the people that elected Donald Trump. You take a look at places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, Michigan, Wisconsin, right? I mean, these, were, these are states with lower middle class working, predominantly white people, although Trump did a lot better with black people than Mitt Romney did. Let me point out, and he got thirty percent of the Hispanic vote in spite of all the demonization. But he, you know, he captured that vote because the Democrats did nothing to appeal to them or to even offer any kind of a program that would give them hope with regard to the loss of their their income. You know, Trump did present a fairly, even in his own, in way, he presented a fairly, fairly solid agenda for working people: lower taxes, less business regulations, so that people can get into business themselves, or that their businesses could expand. You know, better trade deals so foreign nations like China, aren't dumping cheap products into the United States and putting people out of work. You know, tightening up illegal immigration, which further advances the, the value of American labor. I mean, American labor has been working for over a century to build a level of influence that they have. That can go out the window if you have a huge influx of cheap labor. And believe me, it's not just liberal Democrats, but it's also conservative Republicans who want to have that. Trump has come out against it. Um, you know, he's he presented a positive agenda. In spite of his ignorant and, and dumb comments from time to time and his insults, which I think hurt him. I think he would have done even better had he not done that. He presented... What I would suggest is a positive agenda for working people. And, um, but there are, are even more fundamental issues. And, and who, did, who voted for Hillary, by the way? You know, the, the people, you know, California, New York, Chicago, the big cities. You know, not regular working people. You know, people who live in this sort of liberal bubble. And they were so shocked that she lost because they don't talk to anybody outside that bubble. They tend to talk only to each other, and they don't really know what's going on in the rest of the country. You know, they just, uh, it's it's very interesting. And, And this whole business about Trump having something against black men and women, having something against Hispanics, having something against gays, having something against Muslims, I think that this, was, this it was, it was an insult to people who support Trump, and almost explicitly so, Hillary's comment about, you know, the basket of irreconcilables, whatever she said, deplorables. And it's why they lost. They didn't offer a positive agenda. Instead, all they did was not only insult Trump, but they insulted people who support Trump. Oh, they're ignorant, they're backward, they're stupid. You know, they shouldn't be listened to. They don't deserve to be considered, they're haters. And the more they insulted us, people who support Trump, the more our ranks grew. And the irony is that after the election, they're continuing to do it. They are getting more virulent, more angry, more insulting more offensive with these ugly charges, these false charges. And the more they do it, the more they're going to lose because they're going to put themselves into such a, a small network that, that's so out of touch with people that, that they're going to further their, their, their uh, shrinking number. They're going to shrink, I guess you might say, in numbers and shrink more. So that's how I take that. You know, I don't think that the people who support Trump have anything against black people. Now, that's not to say that people who don't like black people support Trump. They probably do. But that's like, a you know, you can find them under a rock. Maybe the, you know, Jared Taylor and and, um, Peter Brimelow and them. But those people are just a tiny, tiny fringe subset of people. You know, they're, they're almost like the anarchists. And they are not to be taken as part of any kind of legitimate view. And to conflate their numbers and to conflate their influence and say, that, aha, this is a people that support Trump, is a big, big mistake. And it's an insult and it's wrong. Trump won for legitimate reasons. He tapped into some legitimate issues that resonated with real people. And furthermore, I think that the cause of these protests, the cause of the anger and the angst against Trump is not, is not really necessarily the, um, the people who are agitating on the streets and the, you know, the young people, the young kind of like, I, I think that those people, you know, I, I'm going to do respect to them. And I'm saying this as someone who is an Uber driver and who's driven my share of them, they're out to look for fun. You know, they're looking for a date. They're looking for, you know, adventure. And, uh, you know, they're wrapped up in the rhetoric that Trump has something against people and all of that. They're also buying into this narrative that somehow Trump's responsible for an increase in racism, which, I mean, I think there's plenty of blame to go around on that one. Would it not also be the fault of, Uh, you know, liberal Democrats who are fanning the flames of racism as a way to continue their relevance? I think so. But my point is that the real opposition is not that. That's just window dressing. The real opposition to Donald Trump, and this is something that I don't think most of your unwitting, well-meaning protesters understand, is a much more establishment view. It's a view that's held by people like George Soros, the multi-billionaire convicted felon who has financed mm, some of these protests, apparently, and certainly was a financier for Occupy Wall Street and and, uh, Black Lives Matter and a bunch of other movements and the Brennan Institute, that their view is one of which they don't like Trump because he is a nationalist, because he's put America first. They believe that America needs to gradually move into an international system. I guess you could call it a bunch of things. Conservatives have pointed to the term new world order. Uh, Other people have called it a one world government. I'm not sure that it's that formal but it's a weakening of American sovereignty and all national sovereignties, a move toward creating regional authorities that are not elected, um, of weakening national borders and national identities and cultures, and of um, making the United States into sort of what we might euphemistically call a providence of the world, you know, an entity that exists in name only, That's what they believe in, and that's what Trump threatens, and that's why they hate Trump. It's not because he's made some stupid, insulting comment about someone's ethnicity. If he was on their side, they would ignore that. They certainly ignored it with Bill Clinton, didn't they? No, they hate Trump because he stands for a natural idea, and that is putting your your nation's interests first in the same way that you put yourself first. Or your family first. He, These people want to change human nature. They want to create an informal, unelected, and appointed world order, frankly, that has actual governing powers. You know, they support things like, um, you know, the Rio Conference, in uh, which took place in the 1990s and that... Um, would implement environmental regulations all over the world. Now, there's nothing wrong with environmental regulations per se. But the problem is that such regulations ought to be decided by elected officials, preferably on the local level where people live, and they are affected by environmental problems. Now, something like air pollution or water pollution or you know, big, big environmental questions that affect the whole country and the world for that matter. That's different. That has to be, perhaps, addressed on a national level. But most environmental questions are local, and they should not mean that we sacrifice our ability to govern ourselves. We should have control over that in the same way we want to have maximum control over most aspects of our lives and identities. That's what, that's what limited government's all about. That's what the Constitution's all about. And that's what Trump threatens to resurrect. And they hate that because they want us to forget that. They want us to view these things as regressive and old-fashioned and very antiquated in this new complex world. Well, I would argue that they're not antiquated at all. In fact, they're more relevant today than ever. And that uh, Donald Trump, regardless of what he personally is about, I have no idea, but the movement that he represents threatens that apple cart. It threatens to wake people up. And so, now that he has been elected, I think that my responsibility, frankly, as someone who tries to do media and, and tries to do outreach and, and, and wants to do, um, be involved in public affairs, and the rest of us, should be to spend the next 4 to 8 years and to get going right away just like I'm trying to do right now trying to educate people in terms of what the significance is of this election and of this revolution it transcends the personality of Donald Trump although I think that he is a unique person who's come around at a unique time and I and I am absolutely awestruck by him for that But it transcends ultimately what he does on a day-to-day basis or who he is. This is a movement. It is the same movement that swept Great Britain and which caused them to exit from the European Union. This election is just like that. I can tell you Trump was not supposed to win. The people of Great Britain had the same concerns. Except in Britain, I think it was a bit more accentuated in that they were seeing how the European Union was regulating more aspects of their lives than ever their health, their education, their welfare, the way they brought up their children. all these regulations were coming in that were by, by which they had no say over plus the uh, the European Union was regulating issues like who immigrated into and out of Britain. And that sort of thing. These are basic issues that any sovereign nation traditionally has a say over. That's what democracy is about. And as such, the British people rejected it and they they voted to have their government exit the uh, European Union. Well, the same dynamic is at play here. And so, I think that if we can spend the next time, uh, you know, these coming years beginning to understand the significance of that, beginning to understand why this is progressive, why it's important to retain and to advance individual rights, why that matters, then we will put meaning into this election because that's what this election was all about. Anyway, you're welcome to join me in the final segment. Chuck Morse here. 855 855-915-9636. The program is simultaneously broadcast on Facebook. Uh, that'll be posted up on my blog site as well. The program will be also posted into Podomatic if you want to listen to it later. It'll be on iTunes and Stitcher. And um, it's also something that I send out to my my social network, which is primarily Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter and uh, that's something that's growing a lot for me That I've, I'm up to about mm, maybe 20,000, 25,000 followers at this point so I'm developing this whole and plus my blog sites I'm developing this whole online work and it's very interesting you know in a way I mean it's part of this move toward individual uh, you know identity but also um, you know a kind of localism in that we can all have our own platforms to communicate our ideas and link with others. You look at Donald Trump obviously understood this. He has, I think it's over 20 million Twitter followers. And even though he goes off the reservation on Twitter and he's very thin-skinned and sometimes responds inappropriately when he feels he's under attack, nevertheless, I think he has used Twitter as a way to do an end run around the media which filters what he says and puts it in a way they want to put it, which may have nothing to do with what he's saying. And it gives him a chance to communicate directly with millions of people and do it simultaneously. And that's a power. I think that had a lot to do with his election. I think he had an understanding of how social media works and he knew how to use it in a way that no previous candidate was able to do. And I think it's a reflection of things going forward. You know, it's a reflection of of a new means of communication. It reflects this movement that I'm a big supporter of, and that is localism and subsidiarity. You know, more people, I mean, the days of big, big companies where 5,000 people punch a time clock and go into a factory, that's, that's kind of a thing of the past. Now people work from home. You know, they work from their laptops. They develop their own networks. They work anytime they feel like working. Um, there's much more autonomy, much more local control. In a sense, it's a return to what this country was when it was founded. Except back then it was agrarian. Now it's much more tech and much more oriented toward, uh, you know, all sorts of uh, businesses and endeavors. But it's the same principle: localism. You know, locally grown products. In fact, I think that even out in western Massachusetts. There's an experiment to create a local currency; they call it the uh, the Berkshire. Uh, these are all good. Tr- these are all good developments. I mean, it's this is why you know the last big, big federal, national program that was attempted was a complete disaster, and that was Obamacare. So we're returning to more of a local insurance companies competing in the open market, local doctors, less government control. And that's going to accrue to the benefit of freedom, I would argue. Anyway, it looks like um, my success is getting ready to warm up here. What do you have? What do you have going on? This is a, strike the box. Strike the box here. Let me turn on your mic. What do you? What? How do I do that? Thank you. That's uh, number, what do you Mic break number break two. Mic four. Mike four. Get, get there we go. So tell me about strike the box. Uh, strike the box is two hours of freeform radio. It's um, anything and everything. Uh, heavy rotation of uh, garage '60s uh old-fashioned punk rock so it's yeah oh, cool i mean I, I can say i'm a little older than you but i think we have the same genre of music did you grow up around here yeah i grew up with uh starting way back with RKO Listen to dale dorman that's oh uh, yeah back of I course go. yeah dale dorman crazy dale dorman exactly but, okay uh, so you're, you're into the good stuff uh, hopefully thanks <laughs> but coming up at uh, 12 o'clock there we go and also tufts university radio um is one of the oldest stations in the country. Did you know that? Uh, the first radio station ever was uh, on Tufts campus. The first radio station ever? ever. Yep. Is the, leg- is the legend true that somebody put a cable outside and hooked it up to the train track? That's what I hear. That's why WTUR got taken off the air. That was the first call letters the first for call? The, the college radio, WTUR. Oh, okay. Because they were picking it up in California. Well, I heard as far north to um, Canada, Canada. To yeah. Canada. Okay. Well, of course, now with technology being what it is, the show can be heard anywhere, anyway. Exactly. So we've got that.
1: So, coming right. up soon.
0: Great. Thanks a lot. And, of course, um, check out my, my uh, blog sites and my books are available at Amazon. Just put in my name in the server, Chuck Morse. Morse, like Morse code, M O R S E. And you'll see about a dozen nonfiction books pop up. My latest being Communism is Not Dead. Um, I've got a new book coming out about this election, which should be out sometime in the next three months. And I guess I want to thank everyone for listening this afternoon. Have a good day, everybody. How do I call up the music here? There we go. Don't be afraid. Unless you're beautiful. And in your bedroom. And alone. at numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Now here's something we hope you'll really like. The following program is brought to you in living color on uh, WMFO 91.5. It's wicked pisser radio. This is Strike the Box with Chris. So